0: Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery hidden object game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games. Hello, and welcome to episode number 32 of The Music Plays the Band on the Pantheon Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kortz of the Dark Star Orchestra. I hope you all are safe and well. Well, we're still on the road as I start this, but I was able to finish it up in St. Louis as I'm home for a couple of days in the middle of this run. Uh, Even though it's only for two nights, it's still great to come home and see the family for just a minute. We've had a great tour so far, and it should be over right now but we're going back out to make up our New Year's run this weekend. Uh, So it'll be New Year's Eve, April Fool's kind of thing. Uh, Then it's home for another couple days before we fly out to LA to do one night at the Skull and Roses Festival, and after that we get a good month off before hitting the southeast and making our way up to the Dark Star Jubilee in Ohio for Memorial Day weekend. As fun as the tour has been, though, I guess our big news is about Europe. That's right, we are very excited to be going to Europe in September to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the Grateful Dead's Europe 72 tour. We had wanted to match up the dates and do the tour this spring, but the timing wasn't quite right. But we will be able to recreate a few of the shows in the very same rooms that they were originally performed in. We've played in Europe on many occasions, but never on a tour this extensive. We're going to be hitting England, France, Germany, and Italy, so super, super excited about that. I'm also very excited to bring along as my guest today Grammy-winning harmonica virtuoso Howard Levy. Howard might be best known to many of you as a member of Bella Fleck and the Flecktones, but he's also recorded with Paul Simon, Donald Fagan, Dolly Parton, and a host of others. He's a fan of the dead and their paths crossed many times over the years and he has some great stories to share. Also joining me today is Patrick Higgins from Last Fair Deal out of the Hampton Roads area in Virginia. So as always, I'm glad you're here, and before we get to the first segment, I humbly ask you to support the podcast any way you can. There's the monthly Patreon subscription with giving levels starting as low as $5 a month, which gives you exclusive bonus content, including outtakes, expanded interviews and segments, videos and stories from the road, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution through PayPal, and a portion of all proceeds goes to the Rex Foundation, the charity started by the Grateful Dead. You can find out about all of this and more at www.themusicplaystheband.net. And wherever you are listening to the podcast, please rate, like and review. So let's get right to it. Here we go. The Black Music Moment is brought to you by The Clean Store, brandingandapparel.com for all your branding and apparel needs technology-driven solutions and concierge service for managing programs of all sizes. The black music moment is our attempt at chronicling the profound influence of black music and musicians on the Grateful Dead. Today we honor Smokey Robinson. William Smokey Robinson Jr. was born on February 19, 1940 in Motown, Detroit, Michigan. He was always interested in music and started his first doo-wop group, The Five Chimes, while he was still in high school. They soon changed their name to the Matadors, started playing all over Detroit, and eventually settled upon the name The Miracles. In 1957, he met songwriter Barry Gordy, who was impressed not only with Smokey's voice, but the hundred plus songs he had already written. Soon after, Gordy founded Tamla Records, which later became Motown, and Smokey and the Miracles were one of the first acts that they signed. In late 1960, the group recorded their first hit single, Shop Around, which became Motown's first million-selling hit record. Between 1960 and 70, Robinson would produce 26 top 40 hits for the Miracles as lead singer, chief songwriter, and producer, including hits such as You've Really Got a Hold On Me, The Tears of a Clown, Track of My Tears, Ooh Baby Baby, and The One We Will Hear Today, I Second That Emotion, the group's only number one hit during those years. Robinson was also one of the major songwriters and producers for the label, composing hits for many Motown artists, including the Temptations hits, My Girl, Get Ready, and another one that was covered by Jerry Garcia, The Way You Do The Things You Do. In addition to all of this, he was also named as Motown's Vice President. In 1969, Smokey retired from the road, but that was short-lived. He embarked on a steady solo career in the 70s and topped the charts again in 1981 with the hit Being With You. Smokey's a legend in the game and is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame, and he's received multiple Lifetime Achievement Awards. He will definitely go down in history as one of the greatest songwriters of his generation. Second That Emotion was performed a handful of times by the Grateful Dead in 1971, and the song was a regular part of the Jerry Garcia Band's repertoire between 1973 and 1994. But here is Smokey Robinson and the Miracles with the original 1967 hit, I Second That Emotion. I'd like to take a minute and tell you about Beth Kortz. She is a psychotherapist, intuitive clarity coach, and founder of the Authenticity Academy. For the past 12 years, she has been supporting her clients to fully embody their authenticity and create the life they desire with her three-step clarity coaching program. This is your time to gain clarity, defining yourself by who you really are and not what you do, increase your confidence by activating your inner powers and take soul-led action, creating a life in alignment with your purpose, passion, and desires. Are you ready to learn more? Then book a free 30-minute clarity call with Beth Chords. Visit www.yourclarity.coach or the sponsor page of the musicplaystheband.net. I know she is looking forward to supporting you on your journey. In today's segment of There is a Grateful Dead cover band in every town, we're heading back out to Virginia to speak with Patrick Higgins of Last Fair Deal. Okay, good morning. I am here today with Patrick Higgins from Last Fair Deal, who's based, I guess, out of the Hampton Roads area down in Virginia Beach, that area? Yes, sir. How are you today?
2: Uh, I live in Norfolk, others in Virginia Beach and uh, uh, Portsmouth, but they're all... Cities all kind of together, you know, they all bump up against each other.
0: Right on, man. Well, well thank you for being here. Why don't you Thank, uh, thank you. go ahead and uh, tell us last fair deal down in that, down in that area. How did it come together? A little, little rundown on your history and how you get started.
2: Well, uh, how it got started, um, I was one of the, the sort of original members, but I did not start the band. Uh, one of our drummers, our, our Mickey guy, Dave Perkins, uh, would have these regular you know, weekly jams or semi-weekly jams at his house and had lots of people come over. And uh, one of the regulars was our our Jerry guy, Kyle Folsom. And he would come over there and jam a lot. All kinds of people would come over. And I, so the story I got was uh, Kyle had a, a gig at a local place uh, lined up and then his band sort of dissolved or was not able to play for a while. So... Between he and Dave, I guess I said, "Hey, why don't we work up a bunch of Grateful Dead stuff and just kind of go jam all these dead songs for a night? You know, all the hippies will come out, and you know, it would just be fun." And uh, so uh, they started working up some songs. Then I guess after a few few sessions, something was kind of missing. I guess they needed another guitar player. And and then uh, after we did the after we did the show, it was kind of like, "Hey, that was really fun." And, you know, some people started calling, hey, can you come do this party? Can you come play at this club? You know, sort of started getting offers and we sort of sort of fell back in. You just sort of, hey, well, we all do other stuff, but let's keep doing this too. And, you know, over the years, some personnel changes, people come and go, people go and come back, (laughs) you know, uh, but uh, we've got the solid lineup close to the original lineup uh, we've had now for a number of years. And
0: how long have you all been together?
2: Uh 10 years about. Uh, ten years. A little over 10 years. Yeah.
0: And you're full instrumentation, you're full seven piece, right?
2: We are. Yes. That's we, nice. we favor, you know, sort of the seventies lineup with Adana. But you know, we all we all play the the roles similar to you guys. Um but we will still do um 80 you know we'll do the later material as well
0: and i know jimmy you'll cover all parts of it because I, I, I saw a video of you all doing uh chinatown shuffle so you're going back to the 60s stuff as well
2: oh uh, yeah we'll go way back um our our girl singer sherry lynn she really really likes pig pen so we and uh our keyboard player doesn't really sing pig pen stuff you know like that. we don't really have a, a a person that can do pig well so sherry takes them and she makes them her own, man. And, uh, and she does it just a great job.
0: Do you all take a, a, specific, a specific approach when you're interpreting and performing it, or do you just go for it? You try and keep it uh, <clears throat> true to the form. How, how's what's your approach?
2: I'm I'm the Bobby guy. I I tend to stick very closely to what Bob does. Um, <clears throat> and I got to see the Grateful Dead. Now our age range in the band is like mid late thirties to sixty. So <laughs> some people didn't get to see them, but there's, you know, this stuff is so well-documented, right? You know, people see videos and all that. So, um, what we really try and concentrate on is the vocals. We really want our vocals to be right. We like the heart. You know, a lot of folks say, Oh, grateful. They oh, they, they sang like, well, they didn't, those guys, were good. they had good vocals. They had, and really creative harmonies too. Right. And quirky. And we try and dig into that quirkiness. Um, and so, you know, we really put an emphasis on the vocals. Uh, and then musically, we, we like to get the body of the song correct. And certain signature things that happen during jams. We use the jams a little bit more to launch into um, expressing our, ourselves. You know, still sounding Grateful Dead, Grateful Dead-ish. Um, yet using that to you know explore but the bodies of the songs we like to keep pretty true to form um occasionally we'll do a specific set list if it's like we're celebrating something usually we'll, we'll kind of come up with our own but we like to make them look like a, a grateful dead set
0: right list. how often are you all playing
2: oh uh two to four times a month right now um we're trying to expand, become a little more of a regional, a regional act. The The idea is to play you know, two to four times, but not in the same area.
0: So where all have you been going to?
2: Uh, here we play in the Outer Banks, uh, up near Williamsburg, Richmond, um, a little further west of Richmond. We play, our sort of home base here is a, a place called Elevation 27, and that's... Uh, one of the owners there is uh, is Bill Reed. You may have been familiar with him, way back, and he's he's kind of taken a liking to us, kind of uh, try and help us get further afield.
0: That whole area down there, I mean, we come to Norfolk quite a bit, and it, well, there's a lot of bands in that region. But Hampton, in particular, is a favorite stomping grounds for the dead. You know, North Of course. <laughs> they played a couple of legendary shows there, some big bust outs down there. So, obviously, the scene is really strong down there. What can you tell me a little bit about your local scene?
2: Well, I'll tell you. The local scene, as far as dead, there, there's not a lot of Grateful Dead acts down here. Richmond and D.C. have tripled in, in the number. I mean, it, they just exploded in those areas. Um, there's really just a couple of us down here uh, doing it though. There, there's some people doing some acoustic based things down here too, but there's, there's a lot of deadheads, a lot of hippies. Uh, the beach is a great place to be a hippie. Right. <laughs> um, I moved down here in like 2001. And to me, this area, uh, is about as similar to the West coast as I found in the East.
0: What, what for you, what is it about, I mean, there's a whole community that comes and sees you, I'm sure, and you see a lot of the same fans, and what is it about this music that that creates this community, this subculture, if you will, in your mind?
2: You know, I guess some of it, you know, Dead & Company and all that has really raised their profile. I think a lot of people are just kind of in it, well, we can remember back in the day when kids started showing up for the party, they heard it was the best party in town. But still, in that set of people, there's some that it just resonates with. I would like to think it's the depth in the lyrical content of the songs that just. It just moves you in a in a subconscious archetypical way. It just it's in our DNA almost. Plus, you know, the the heart of the music is so much is American, is Americana. You know, yeah, Bob and Jerry, they're so into folk, bluegrass, jazz, this, but it's all fountains from the same well that I think just touches our hearts.
0: Before I let you go, you mentioned Bob Weir and all that, and you told me you have a, another side project that's Bob Weir related. You want to share a little bit about that?
2: This I started uh, some years ago. There's, as you know, tons of Grateful Dead tribute bands, uh, lots of Jerry tribute bands. Jerry gets his Jerry gets his due, deservedly so. I I've always been kind of the Bob Weir guy. So I just kind of felt he was overlooked a little bit, you know? Uh, Now, and there's not as many hardcore Bob fans as as Jerry fans, but uh, so I started this this band called Getting Weird uh, with an apostrophe D, and we call it a tribute to Bob Weir's musical legacy. So we don't emulate any particular lineup. And some stuff we try and do very true to either the record or live performance. Other stuff we we'll make a little more interpretive. We're just trying to just expose some of his genius to people. He, he, I think he's brilliant.
0: Are you going outside the Grateful Dead catalog? Then I'm pulling up Easy to Slip and Shades oh. of Gray and all that kind of
2: stuff. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that. Uh, yeah, extensively. We we do a lot of stuff from Bobby in the Midnight's Rat Dog. Uh Last uh, this weekend we were working on. Uh, Easy to Slip, Heaven help the Fool, and Salt Lake City. Um, Come on. <laughs> uh, We do stuff off his Blue Mountain album. Uh, and, and we go back. Of course, we mine the Grateful Dead catalog, you know, because people want to they, they hear Grateful Dead songs, too, and I want to keep playing them. So.
0: Sure, but it's great that you guys, you're bringing out a bunch of those Bobby tunes that not many people play, that not, sung, to be honest, that some Dead fans might not even know about.
2: Some of them don't. We've played two gin a number of times and people are like, I've never heard that. Are you sure that's a Bobby song? I'm sure it's a Bobby song. Well, I think it's great.
0: You're doing that. And I think it's oh, great. Thank you. Keeping it, uh, keeping it all alive down in that area with last fair deal as well. And, and I appreciate you taking the time this morning. It took us a few minutes to uh, find a, find a time that worked for both of us with me traveling. And you know, you did a little <laughs> traveling, but again, it's a pleasure to meet you. And I really appreciate you taking it's the time this morning.
2: It's a pleasure and an honor, Rob. Thank you so
0: much. Well, thank you. That's Patrick Higgins from Last Fair Deal out of Hampton Roads, Virginia. If you like what you're hearing today, please consider supporting the podcast with a contribution. We have two ways for you to do this. You can become a patron with a monthly subscription for as little as $5 a month. That includes expanded video versions of our segments, all of the outtakes that don't make it onto the podcast videos from home and on the road, and much, much more. You can also make a one-time contribution via PayPal, and part of every contribution goes to the Rex Foundation. You can do this and learn more about the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. And if you have the time, please like, rate, and review the podcast on whatever player you might use. Thanks for your continued support and for helping spread the word about the podcast. Our feature conversation is brought to you by Grateful Sweats. Grateful Sweats' subtle song designs will strike a chord for heads who get it. Search Grateful Sweats on Etsy for a wide selection of cold-weather gear like hoodies, beanies, and of course sweatpants, as well as other grateful goodies with more than 30 designs like Tennessee Jed, Women Are Smarter, and my personal favorite Eyes of the World. Visit Etsy.com shop gratefulsweats Sweats or get there from the sponsors page at our website. And right now, if you use the code THEMUSICPLAYS, you can save 10% and receive a free pin. And don't miss the clearance section with items up to 80% off. So as soon as you're done listening, head on over to Grateful Sweats. My featured guest today is two-time Grammy winner Howard Levy. Howard is best known as a harmonica player, most notably with Bela Fleck and the Fleck Tones, but he plays numerous instruments has toured with many legends, and has appeared literally on hundreds of albums. His love for the dead goes way back, and he shared some pretty amazing stories. This quickly goes down as one of my favorite conversations so far, and I really hope you enjoy listening to it as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. So here is Howard Levy. Okay, good day, everybody. I am here today with harmonicist Howard Levy. How are you, sir? I am just fine. (laughs) I'm glad to be here. It's, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, sure. I know you're
4: kind of back out there working again. Were you able to stay busy during the pandemic? Well, actually, I've been extremely busy through a combination of uh, – I have an online harmonica school with a company called ArtistWorks, and that has actually grown quite a bit. Uh, and just doing a bunch of live streams, uh, my wife and I did a whole series of them uh, that we – the first one we did we gave all the money that people sent in to the uh greater chicago food depository
0: nice
4: uh that was like right in the at the worst part of the pandemic uh in late uh 2020 and uh and i've been recording a lot of tracks for like albums that i'm making on my own and also for many other artists maybe maybe 50. i i, wow. I can't i've lost track like a lot so um, I've actually honed my home recording skills quite a bit.
0: That's fantastic, I, and being able to, with the technology today, to be able to keep working during all this is just amazing, isn't it?
4: Yeah, it's been um, it's been a journey, and uh, I also got the virus right in the beginning of it. Uh, I was I was extremely sick, but uh, managed to avoid going to the hospital, and uh, and I recovered fully. But it was very scary. Wow. Man, I don't want to really talk about it much but well, it was uh it made me extremely and my wife got it after I got it a milder case of it it made me extremely cautious about getting out there and playing again for sure gonna, I am going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start doing that um actually in uh, in May with with in Chicago or you going on the road well uh, I I'm just going to start with some baby steps playing around here and then I have other gigs that are road gigs in uh, August uh, September, October, um, things starting back up, and maybe sooner. Maybe some things during the summer as well. I I just hope the virus cooperates. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> you
0: know. No doubt. You know, we're back out there, and we started a couple months yeah. ago, very cautiously, and waiting to see will we be able to continue, or is the shoe going to drop on the other side? You know. Yep. Hopefully, everything will be good because right now it's really good to be getting back out. Um if you don't mind, before we really get into the debt, I'd like to start back at the beginning with you. I know you were born in Brooklyn. Can you give us just a
4: brief story uh, on your musical upbringing and how you got started on your journey? Sure. Uh, Well, as you said, I was born in New York City in Brooklyn, and uh, uh, I was just always fascinated by music, and there was a lot of it in the house. Uh, My dad sang, like, Broadway stuff and opera and had a tried to have a career uh when he was when he was young after he got back from world war ii um, and had some moderate success but never enough to uh to really make any real money at it i'll just put it that way and then he went into business um and my mom went to uh what was called the high school of music and art back then which is the high school of new york high school of performing arts and so they were really into music and art. And, uh, so there was always music playing in the house and they had parties where friends would come over and they'd gather around the piano and people would sing and play instruments. And, you know, I didn't know that was unusual. So, right. uh, it was just something that, uh, music seemed like very natural to me. And I started playing piano. Uh, they, I finally got them to agree to give me piano lessons. Uh, when I was about eight and a half years old, and I immediately started improvising. So I guess I had been like listening to stuff and had that desire inside me. Um, and then I ended up going to the Manhattan School of Music uh, for piano and theory every Saturday for four years from age nine to 12. But I, I just kept improvising. And like every, anything I heard that I liked, I would imitate it, you know, whatever style of music it was. And, uh, and then after, my strong classical music period i started listening to the radio more and and uh you know listening to all the all the stuff the wide variety of stuff that was played on so-called hit radio back then which included everything you know you'd you'd hear Jimi hendrix and um ramsey lewis and bert camfort you know like these goofy instrumental tunes uh novelty songs like uh they're coming to take me away and all sorts of really weird things that were on so-called hit radios. So I I listened to everything. And uh, then when I was a teenager, um, I got turned on to blues Uh, and first heard the great Chicago blues harmonica players. And I was playing piano before that, you know, Uh, and this blew my mind. And that's what led to me uh, picking up the harmonica. I'm trying to make the story short. It's a long you're doing story. great.
1: <laughs> I'm actually <laughs> going to back uh, up
0: and ask you a question about that. When you were, you know, you're knee-deep in the classical thing, how did the 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 teachers, the instructors there react to this kid who just wanted to improvise and was listening to music outside the classical realm? Were they cool with that, or was that a no-no?
4: Oh, yeah, they they actually were. They. I was one of the few kids at Manhattan uh, who improvised, And there were tons of of kids who played great, but not too many composers or improvisers. Um, And sometimes I was a very, I was really lazy about reading music. And so if I heard someone else play a piece, because they had these little student concerts all the time, um, and my teacher assigned me the piece, I would kind of remember how it went. So if I got to a part where it was hard to see, I go, I think it kind of goes like this. And I understood harmony. And so I would play stuff that, it wasn't what was on the page, but it didn't sound wrong. It drove my teacher crazy. Because <laughs> uh, I was just like, I think it goes like this, you know. So she, it drove her nuts, but she understood, and uh, the school understood. Uh, so sometimes I got to play my original things in concerts. And they actually uh, recommended that I study in Paris with Nadia Boulanger when I was 11 years old. And she's the probably the most famous uh, music teacher uh of the mid 20th century she taught Leonard Bernstein and all sorts of other really great musicians like Berto Gismanti the great Brazilian uh, guitarist and composer and uh, and I didn't know who the hell she was and my parents are going like I we can't move to France for six months I mean and I agreed I said "I, I I how could I do that you know I'd miss my friends and But anyway, so the school definitely understood that my my natural ability was something that uh, was substantial, you know? Right. Um, And so, you know, when you have something like that, it's just a matter of how hard are you willing to work at it to instead of being like a flash in the pan, like, oh yeah, he's so talented, you know, this kind of thing, and how hard are you willing to work and do you really want to do it as a profession? You Know, uh, do you want to be a professional musician and how does that work to be a professional musician? And so, these are things I kind of wrestled with. Um, and uh, after I got into blues, I uh, I discovered jazz and uh, actually, John Coltrane is what uh was my initial uh exposure to jazz was listening to a Coltrane album and having it blow my mind,
1: right? So, on. I
4: didn't start out like First, you listen to the older stuff and no, you listen, whatever grabs you, you know, pulls you into that universe. And so, and then I would go out to every club that I could in New York City to hear all the greatest jazz musicians. And they didn't care if I wasn't old enough to drink. They would let me in anyway, you know, right. and say, drink a Coke and sit here at the Village Vanguard or the Gate or wherever I went. Um, and uh, And around the same time, I was also going out to what was then called the Village Theater and later became the Fillmore East. And listening to all the great rock, I mean, it's hard to even call it rock. I mean, like music, musical acts that came through New York City, which were, you know, everybody. Right. And that's where I first heard the dead, actually.
0: You started to allude to it, and I kind of cut you off and made you back up. I apologize. So but you're, you're so accomplished as a keyboard player, and you heard the Chicago Bluesman, and that's what drew you in. Can you tell me a little bit more about just? All of a sudden this awakening to the harp.
4: Well, yeah, because growing up in New York, New York's not exactly a blues capital. Right. Know? Uh but uh blues is in all American music and every American person who lives and breathes hears it and absorbs it to a certain extent. Um and so when I heard these guys, um, it was so a kind con- of combination of like primal and uh at the same time there was a lot of sophistication to it too. It was surprising. Uh and, and just the sound of the harmonica was something like, oh, man, listen to that. I thought the harmonica was like a little kid toy. I had no idea anyone could make a sound like that on it. And as a piano player, it was very appealing to me because, uh, you know, with a piano, you have to go to it, and it weighs up like 900 right. pounds, and you have to, like, make sure that, you know, you can get into a room that nobody else is playing it, and, you, you know, you harmonica you can put in your pocket and take it with you anywhere it's kind of subversive in a way uh and uh one of my buddies um in high school taught himself how to play really well inside of a few months and i thought well he was the drummer in the little band we had The drummer can teach us i I knew that was coming man (laughs) surely i could do this (laughs) so uh, (laughs) so uh the first thing that happened is uh we went out to hear uh, some blues uh, at a club called the Cafe O'GoGo on McDougal Street. Uh, yeah, this is a long story, but uh, I'll make it short. And it was a double bill of James Cotton and Paul Butterfield at their height, both of them, with their greatest bands. And this absolutely blew my mind. And I said, I gotta, I gotta learn how to play the blues. And, uh, you know, I figured out all sorts of stuff on piano and then It was like maybe i could even play the harmonica you know and and carry this thing around and sound like that so i was like uh i guess i was 18 when i bought my first harp or 17 i don't remember um so uh yeah that's how that started and then um but like i said at the same time like right after that is when i got into jazz and so like these two things were going together in my mind and i wasn't really paying that much attention to classical music anymore as you're as you're starting out on that harp who are like
0: are there a lot, enough harp players out there to be an influence i i really oh, yeah. don't know
4: oh yeah no the the guys that i was uh, influenced by were the great chicago blues players as little walter and junior wells and paul butterfield he was my personal favorite james cotton and i would listen to that stuff and you know my friends we had this band that was, we were playing blues, you know, and we actually had a harmonica player who was a professional harp player. And so I got to hear him play and, uh, yeah, uh, I was very inspired and I couldn't play a lick on the harmonica until I got out to Northwestern. Uh, you know, it was freshman orientation week and I had been carrying this harp in my pocket and, uh, not this one, but, uh, very similar to it and, uh, honking away and then. Okay, I'll tell the story. Uh, (laughs) Thank you. I I, uh, went to a rally for the Chicago 7. Do you know who that is? Of course. Okay. They let them out of prison so that they could make these speeches and raise funds for their defense. Right. And uh, it was quite an experience. I didn't know a soul there and there were about 500 of us packed into this little lecture hall in Northwestern. And they were all, all the guys were there, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and Randy Davis and David Dellinger and Tom Hayden. And they were all making speeches. It was really a mind blower. And I had been pretty actively involved in the peace movement uh, in New York uh, and marched in the big peace de- uh, anti-war uh, demonstrations against the Vietnam war. And so I was very passionate about this. And, uh, I walked out of there not knowing a soul and I was like, okay, what do I do with myself now? That was a, that blew my mind. So, well, maybe I'll try to play the harmonica again. And I had this, this G harp that I had bought at Manny's on West 48th street for $2 and 25 cents. And, and I picked it up and suddenly I could bend a note. And I started playing all these blues licks because I knew how they were supposed to sound. And within a half hour, I was playing all sorts of stuff it was like you know the first day of the rest of my life that's how that started before i had taken one class it was freshman orientation week this was a very uh exciting time and soon after playing the harp and just like obsessively hours and hours each day any place i could find that had good acoustics hallways bathrooms wherever you know uh i realized that there were a bunch of notes missing and This was when I discovered, I just figured that it was, since it was a musical instrument, it had to have all the notes on it. Right. Uh, That's why I was never any good at math. I was constantly making illogical assumptions. (laughs) So uh, I figured out how to get those missing notes by certain techniques that I stumbled upon, just mathematically saying, well, you can bend the draw notes on the bottom, you can bend the blow notes on top. What happens if I try to bend the blow notes on the bottom? Maybe something will happen, and so uh, one day another note popped up, a higher note, uh, and it was one of the notes that was missing, and I discovered that all six notes that are missing from the chromatic scale that you can't get by blowing, drawing, or bending are gainable by this method. And I had never heard any of my harmonica heroes play any of these notes on any recordings. So I I, I can't believe that I'm the first one to do this. I'm 18 years old. I'm a college student. I just started playing harmonica three months ago. Uh, Well, I guess I'll just go for it, and I don't know what to call it. So uh, I talked to a friend of mine who I was playing with in the jazz band, saxophone player. I said, what is it when you blow a note a little harder, and this higher note pops out? He said, it sounds like you're overblowing a harmonic. I said, okay. That's not what it is at all. But I called it overblowing and sorry i did i mean it's it's a very inaccurate term if you were going to rename it now what would you call it Ooh, uh i'll get back to you later i i have no idea <laughs> wow i'm um, surprised uh note extraction i don't know i mean uh well people call it overbending sometimes
0: uh this this is groundbreaking stuff at that point. I mean, no one's really oh, yeah. done this and discovered this.
4: Yeah, there's one recording of of one guy playing squeaking out one note in 1931, and there were a few people who squeaked out a few notes on recordings uh, in the 60s, and there was one guy who was really trying it for a while, and he gave up. Uh, but I'm the first one to to take it and run with it, and it was not a generally known thing among harmonica players at all.
0: And musically that 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 had to open up a whole new world musically
4: well yeah because you know i i see the harmonica in my mind as a piano keyboard um and so I, I you know unlike most guys playing a diatonic harmonica i'm thinking about what notes i'm playing instead of like three draw four blow i'm thinking you know b and c and a four draw band is a is a c sharp or a D flat you know i'm thinking notes direct one-to-one correspondence with the keyboard and so uh, is because of who I was as a natural improviser, composer, and pianist that I would see the harmonica this way, you know. Oh, so that's uh, that's how it happened. And I was 18 years old.
0: Back to the film east. Yeah, I'll tell you, that's where you start seeing all the music of the day. You're still so this is in high school. This is before you leave yep. for college, and that's where you first saw the Grateful Dead. Yeah. What it was called. Was the, it was
4: called the Village Theater at that time, and uh, it's a an, it, the Fillmore East uh, was actually a former Yiddish theater on Second Avenue, and uh, was it Fifth Street between Fifth and Sixth, maybe uh, on the Lower East Side of New York? It was like part of a Ukrainian neighborhood. It was right around there, and there were some Jewish delis on Second Avenue. I mean, it was like a an old old New York, you know. Uh, and my friend, the same guy who. Uh, turned me on to the harmonica and blues also had this grateful dead album their first one it was probably just called the grateful dead i think mm-hmm. and it had morning dew on it and all sorts of tunes like that and uh he said yeah this this band is really great let's go hear them and so you know we the three of us i think uh, the flute player in the band and me and the drummer went down to the village theater and paid whatever the hell it was and uh uh, there was probably an opening act, I don't remember. But The Dead came out on stage, and they immediately sounded great. And Pigpen was was in the band then. It was that incarnation, you know. 67, maybe? Yes, yeah, sure. It could be. I think I was 16, maybe, or 17, 67 or 68. don't remember. Um, While you're talking, I'm going to look it up. Oh, okay. Oh, you'd see. Because <laughs> when I met Jerry years later, I told him that... Uh, that I was at that gig, and he was wow, really? He had a few things to say about it, about what the band was like back then. Oh, my goodness. Was that right? I'm looking. Let's see.
0: It's my recollection. December 27th or December 26th, maybe, Village Theater, New York, New York, 1226 and 1227-67. Wow. Apparently, there was a band called Take Five that also Ah, played. I don't remember. And believe it or not, this is one of the few shows, well, back then it was hard for them to get them, but there's no set list in here for that.
3: But some of those
0: those early 60s shows where they were hard to document set lists, but that was it. So it was right around Christmas time,
4: 1967. Okay. Well, I was right. How do you like that? So I I had just turned 17, maybe? I I don't know. I can't hit anymore. So I I was born in 51. So uh, uh, so, let's see. Uh, So I was 16. 16. I was 16 and a half. Yeah. So, so you haven't picked up the harp yet have you no oh no 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 not at all so pig pen probably played some harp back then. oh yeah
0: what yeah. was your impression as as you get into the harp and you look back on the dead what was your impression of pig
4: pen as a harp player i don't remember anymore i no? mean i just i just loved the dead because uh the music i mean you know if you were around in the 60s i mean there was just tons of experimentation going on everyone was listening to a wide variety of stuff. I mean, and a lot of the so-called rock bands were, were listening to like Indian music and jazz and, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, African music. And everybody was starting to listen to uh, a wide variety of things and incorporate it into their music. Um, and uh, the dead had this tribal feeling about them. That I never heard in uh, any other group at that time, Um, and uh, there's a kind of a communal spirit in the music that was very appealing to me, and that was part of the Zeitgeist, you know, of the late 60s too, of of people really playing together and experimenting on stage, you know, uh, and uh, in whatever genres it was in. I mean. Paul Butterfield Band, their album, East West, that album, I mean, that was like a long jam inspired by Greek music and Indian music. Michael Bloomfield had been listening to all that stuff. Uh, and so there was just, that was just sort of natural. And of course, you know, Indian music had become very popular by that uh, point because the Beatles were interested in it. And Ravi Shankar was sort of a pop star. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, that. so that was my first time hearing The Dead, and then I heard them later, at least two, uh, two more times when the theater became owned by Bill Graham, and it was called The Fillmore East. And I heard them in multi-group billings, and uh, hard to remember who, with whom, or, or when. Um, and uh, I really got into that Live Dead album. I thought that was fantastic. I, I listened to it incessantly. Uh that tune dark star i listened to it over and over and over again uh, as a college freshman in my dorm room uh maybe i had a cassette of it i don't remember anymore i know i had the the vinyl as as the dead progresses through
0: the 70s do you keep up with it or are you off on your own musical journey and it comes out of your consciousness
4: well i kept up with it and working man's dead and stuff like that i liked it but i'm going gee that's a real change but that was part of the whole back-to-the-earth movement. And so, um, you know, where, where hippies started moving to the country and growing organic vegetables and, uh, you know, we had food co-ops and stuff like that. It was all, you know, they were tuned into the spirit of the times. And, I mean, I liked all that stuff, but I didn't like it as much musically as their more exploratory things that they had done a little earlier. So right. I, I, I sort of stopped paying attention and... You know was was much more deeply involved in jazz and then world music which didn't have a name but i in the 19 starting around 1972 i sort of shut my mind against a lot of western pop culture and started listening to music from all over the world um and trying to really get into the roots of music of what it actually is from many different cultures and uh sort of forming a musical map of the world in my head and then i started learning a lot of other instruments as well i started playing um mm-hmm. guitar and mandolin and flute saxophone uh african uh, balafon chinese mm-hmm. guzheng, which is their like a koto type instrument all sorts of different ocarinas and uh flutes and uh so it was sort of uh you know, this musical journey inward and outward that I was involved in. And I was working in day jobs in factories. I mean, I had gone to school for a year and a half, dropped out, moved back to New York City for a year and a half. I played a lot on the street. That's when I started learning all these different instruments. It's a a long life, I'm telling you. It's it's hard to encapsulate it. No, I didn't realize you'd gone back to New York. I thought you stayed in Chicago after you were done with school there. No, I, I moved back to New York. I got a gig playing uh, in an off Broadway show, that uh, that was on a theater on McDoug- yeah, in a theater on McDougal Street. That the show closed on opening night, <laughs> <laughs> leaving successful. me high and dry. And uh, uh, it's a long story, but uh, so when did you go back to Chicago? Well, I I was in New York for a year and a half, and I came back to Chicago in June or July of seventy two. And and you were part of this whole this the scene that was going on there. Was roots and folk
0: and songwriting and jazz and blues, obviously in Chicago. Mm-hmm. But you get you know Steve Goodman and Tom Paxton and John Prine and all these guys. What what's yeah. the scene like there? And are there any, do you feel any connections like between that and the Dead?
4: Um, I don't know about that. I mean, but I I did a tour and record with uh, Steve Goodman and John Prine. And, uh, and Tom Paxton actually, and, uh, Bob Gibson. And I played on a lot of flying fish albums with, uh, and rounder, uh, with, uh, that were recorded in, uh, in Chicago. Uh-oh. and, uh, it was uh, starting around, uh, you know, I was working, I was working in factories and did all sorts of weird day jobs and was teaching out of my apartment. And my, my career really started in earnest in Chicago in 76 and, uh, that's when I kind of exploded on the scene and, uh, uh, started my own bands and, uh, you know, started touring with these, with, with, with Steve and John. And, uh, and then, um, after I got through with that, uh, I actually started a, a jazz quintet, uh, called no bad vibes, which i finally released us, uh, an album of, undiscovered tapes i i stole a page from the dad's book i call it from the vaults there you go man i have a series called from the vaults uh volumes one through four
0: and And you were just holding
4: on to these for all those years and then decided to do something with them i didn't know that they existed the the recordings i had forgotten i had done them i forgot i wrote some of the tunes on the nbv album wow uh it was recorded in 1980 in, in a studio here and then some live stuff that I discovered on, uh, once I had my attic redone and discovered all these cassettes. Yeah.
0: Uh, what a feeling to find
4: that. Yeah, it was uh, shocking. I mean, I remembered one tune that wow. was a 14-minute long um, duet with Tabla uh, with a, a fantastic musician named Willie Schwartz who learned Tabla from Zakir Hussain, basically.
0: Zakir Hussain is actually about to go back on the road with Mickey Hart for the first time in about 15 years ah so they're putting planet drum back together with them and giovanni and Sakura to oh, do
4: some oh really i heard that on the original tour i was yeah. at the vic vic theater in chicago and uh giovanni played his uh solo where he played rumba clave with one hand on a conga solo with the other and i f- <laughs> i was there with paul Ortico actually and wow. i f- i fell out of my chair onto the floor when he did that
0: i yeah. saw them a little later i guess in chicago though at the park west uh. And uh, same lineup, and David Garibaldi on drums, and oh. just mm, mm. um. I want to go back to we're talking about Prime, <clears throat> and Prime. You go on the road with him. He's a, a singer songwriter, one of the masters, much like Robert Hunter in my book. But mm-hmm. my question would be, playing with a songwriter like Prime, or playing an imp- improv, uh, improv based group like the Flectones. Is one more satisfying, or do you find different kinds of joy by the way you approach it?
4: Well, I mean, the thing with Prime, I, I never thought I would do it for a year. I mean, I, I love playing good music with whoever, you know, and whatever style I'm, I, you know, I've played on, I don't know how many, 400 albums by now, maybe, maybe more. And so I'm, I'm used to like being a hired gun. I'll go in there and just try to play the best possible most appropriate inside the music stuff on whatever instrument I'm hired to play. That's part of what I like doing. You know, that's another side of my personality. And, and also, I played on several thousand commercial recording sessions in Chicago known as jingles, where, you know, you get there and they shove a piece of music in front of you, the clicks track starts, you put your headphones on and you play, you know. Uh, and so I'm a, a studio pro, you know, but I didn't think that the John thing would last for a year. Of touring, I mean, it was uh it was it was fantastic. But I didn't want to do it for a year. I was originally hired for three months, and uh, you know, John was a genius, and I really loved him, and we had a great band. But uh, I told people that to play the prime gig, I had to forget ninety percent of what I knew and play the remaining ten 10% percent with a hundred percent of my soul. Love it, love it. And, and I love. I loved it. And you know, I we were touring. I was playing multiple instruments. I had. We toured with a B3 and a grand piano, and I would play them at a 90 degree angle from each other. Uh, and I also was playing harmonica, mandolin, uh, penny whistle, steel drums. After a while, because John said, "I'd like to play. I'd like you to play steel drums on this tune." I went, "Okay." I bought steel drums and i practiced them and i played it on that tune and accordion soprano sax i don't even remember what else you know
0: amazing to be able to be that versatile and fill that many roles for somebody it's a beautiful thing
4: well i I, you know i was much more into learning instruments than i was as a keyboard player like so many keyboard players were getting into like synths and stuff like that and i never was interested in it i was interested in acoustic sounds so I say, oh, listen to this sound. Instead of like push a button on a keyboard or manipulate some some waveforms, it was like, I want to play a flute. You know, right. listen to that. I want to feel what that feels like. And so I I learned a lot about music from the inside out through the instruments. You know, the to, instruments are my teachers.
0: To learn all those different instruments, all those different fingerings, all those different positions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, with the piano, again, the guy presses the button, but he plays the same keys. Yes, um, while you were with the Flecktones, that your path starts to cross with the dead and on more than one occasion. Yes. And I, I know the first, I believe the first time would be you all opened for the Jerry Band in 1990
4: at the it, uh, Greek Amphitheater in uh, Berkeley. Is that the first time you meet Garcia? Yeah. And I had no idea that he had been a banjo player. You know, was the one who told me that, about that. And that you know, I don't remember how he lost his finger, but that, that's why he couldn't uh, continue to pick his the banjo. brother. His brother accidentally chopped it off while they were cutting wood with an axe. That's right. I knew it was some sort of, I thought it was construction, but it was okay. Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: Chopping wood and his brother, Tiff, took it off.
4: Damn. Well. And, and
0: that kind of ended his banjo playing days. What, would you, what do you remember about that? And what was your impressions of the music and Jerry as an impro- improviser?
4: Oh, I mean, I was a huge fan of Jerry's playing. I mean, I loved it. I mean, he, he had, uh, Jimmy, he was like one of the great voices of American music when he played guitar. It was like Louis Armstrong or something. It was something incredibly lyrical and heartfelt and soulful about his playing um, that uh, made him stand out from every other guitar player. There are tons of, you know, great, obviously great guitarists around in the late 60s. I mean, Eric Clapton and Hendrix and Jeff Beck and all sorts of other guys. There are tons of them. Terry Kath from Chicago was an unbelievable guitarist. But Jerry had a, a lyricism in his playing um, the, and a, a kind of a sweetness uh, and a far outness too I mean of the exploratory stuff too I mean it was, it was it was multidimensional um and I remember when we opened for them it it blew my mind I was like wow the 60s aren't dead like uh because at that time America had gone through the whole you know sort of squaring up of things with Ronald Reagan and uh and the polyester generations and, uh, you know, yuppies and all this other stuff. And so I'm looking at the dead's fans. I'm going, oh, this feels like the late 60s. It's like these people never got out of this. There's they're, like, I was unaware of that continuum, you know? Wow. And it, it, it sort of blew me away. I was uh, sort of amused on one level and fascinated on another level and sort of made me feel at home on another level right on that that
0: night that you guys that first one with the jerry band i don't know if you remember that that was just a few nights after brent midland had passed away the keyboard player from the dead and jerry went out and still played um because that was i I looked and i noticed the date of it i'm like boy that looks really close it was five days after brent the keyboard player had died
4: oh that jerry was already out there you know playing that's part of his grieving process was doing what he does Yes, that's the most important thing for musicians is to keep playing, man. You know, yeah. the music will carry you through a lot. And uh, yeah, wow, wow, yeah. That was 1990. 90. 90. That oh, was really. 90, yeah. First yeah. Flectone Tour.
0: Wow. And then, oh, was that the very first Flectone Tour? I think so, yeah. Wow. 90. And then yeah. in 91, you all opened for them on New Year's Eve. Yes, it was Olatunji.
4: I was gonna and, say Olatunji
0: uh, was on that run too. I and, got to play with him one time and it was ah. unbelievable here in St. Louis on a corporate kind of thing. It was
1: oh, oh,
4: just the I, best. I first heard Olatunji at the New York World's Fair in nineteen sixty five at wow. the Nigerian pavilion. He's young then. Just gotten here right Wow. and i thought wow listen to look at that and listen to that wow i never saw anything like that before is that drums of passion at that point or is that just it it is yeah oh yeah man and you Um, know that that coltrane played with all the mm 20 um yeah that's another story but uh so that was right after bill graham had died in that terrible uh, helicopter accident that was their first new year's eve show without him their last new year's eve show i believe yeah i think you're right yeah uh, and I was at the Oakland uh, Coliseum, if I recall correctly, big circular <laughs> building, and, and my friend Ken Ordine was uh, hosting the live broadcast, uh, and uh, we went down there, and, we're, and I had been playing with Ken for quite a while uh, in Chicago, doing commercials and also things for his radio show, which was called uh, Word Jazz. That was on uh npr yeah, the local npr station and uh, distributed and uh that's another whole story i recorded a lot of stuff with Ken. we're
0: going to talk about that too that's coming up
4: just so you know <laughs> but i remember um we were in that radio uh, it was a backstage room where ken was doing the broadcast and uh i brought Bailey. i said yeah bailey come on you, know, you want to experience this and so we sat there and somehow ken had us do some sort of free improvisation. I'm sure there's a tape of it somewhere. Uh, and, and Bela, we walked out and he said, all right, what just happened? I said, it's Ken. <laughs> it was, uh, Cause I, I mean, I had no idea at that point. I, I, I guess Ken had told me that Jerry was such a big fan of Ken's uh, okay. and Ken's basically sort of like free form radio, but well, like way more than that. And, uh, he was a, uh, well, we'll talk about it later if you want, but
0: yeah, uh, I'm glad was... you brought him up because yeah. I did want to talk about that because in 91, which is just not too long after that New Year's Eve show, I guess you and Tom Waits and Joe Craven and Grisman and Jerry recorded an album for, for Ken, the, the devout catalyst album. And is that how that all came about? I mean, you were already friends with Ken from oh, yeah. the Chicago days. How did, how did that group come together to do that album?
4: Well, um, Dan Healy, uh, you know, was engineering it and uh, it was just sort of a general discussion that Jerry really wanted to do this thing and uh, with uh, the band with Dave, you know, with Dave's quartet, with Jim Kerwin and uh, Joe Craven and uh, maybe just the trio, I can't remember. I have an actual photograph of it downstairs that one of Ken's uh, grandsons uh, gave me. But uh, Ken insisted on bringing me along because I was, you know, the person that really understood his thing, and th- he was a little afraid of just jumping into it with those guys, because I I could kind of read his mind and figure out what he really wanted, and I was very familiar with some of the lyrics that that he wanted to do with those guys with different music than we had done with it, and so it was kind of a, you know, I was a, an important ingredient in Ken's mind for this thing and uh, we did it at the dad's uh studio and facility there in uh what was it in san um san rafael san rafael thank you yeah. right down the street from uh, san quentin <laughs> yeah. yeah, on front street there yeah uh, front street that's yeah. right yes yes and uh, that was an experience meeting dan dan was such a trip He's still is is he still with us? Oh yeah, he's and he's still a trip. He actually
0: came on the road with Dark Star and ran sound for us oh. for a couple of Oh, really? We were between Sound and this is years ago and he came and got on our bus and did a couple tours with us and mm. taught us more than we could have ever learned any other way.
4: Yeah, he he's really kind of a genius. Yeah, he really uh, he really is. Well, uh, it was a, that was a fantastic experience for me just meeting him. Yeah. And then of course uh hanging out with Jerry and 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 talking with him and you know, it was fun doing the album. Um, Jerry wasn't in the best shape when we were doing that. He looked, he didn't look good, and he wasn't dressing well. And you could just tell he was kind of, you know, at 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 loose ends. You know, right. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but he was brilliant and funny, and he had a he had a very uh, sardonic sense of humor. And uh, and I enjoyed talking with him when we were when we would hang out in between tunes and uh he was uh yeah incredibly smart guy
3: right
0: i read i read that uh, um dennis mcnally the dead's publicist wrote Mm -hmm. about that album he wrote that it contained no retakes no touch-ups it's voice meets fingers words meet jazz what was the process in making that happen was it, it, and, you know, each song has, I listen to it, and each song has its own musical vibe. So is, is Ken giving
4: direction what he wants out of this musically, or are you guys just going for it? To a certain extent, Ken would say, yeah, why don't you play kind of a a groove that sounds like a snail walking through a garden? I mean, he would say things like that, you know, whatever it might be, uh, you know, kind of a finger-snapping thing, you know. And, and so we would just, someone would just start, because everybody there was, had the ability to do that kind of thing and pick up on on subtle uh s- verbal suggestions right that um, everyone kind of understood what ken was about you know and uh yeah it was probably my first time my first time playing with david i think so i don't remember maybe i had met him before with with the flechtones it's possible so this was 92 91. or 93 no it was 91 i believe oh wow. so i was yeah. still in the flechtones okay yeah, it was 91 and and at that time,
0: Garcia, David, Garcia, and Grisman are like right in the midst of a really prolific time. They're doing a ton of recording, and they're making albums. Yeah, was their chemistry evident to you? I mean, could
4: you oh, see yeah. that? Yeah. Oh. Oh, absolutely. And uh, we did a live gig too, uh, but but I, Jerry wasn't on the live gig. We we did a live gig later at Bimbos uh, that club in San Francisco.
1: I know it well. And <laughs> That was
4: with with Dan on Sound, and that's where I first uh, actually. Uh, experienced in-ear monitors uh they were they were some of the earliest pioneers in in using them
0: and it's right around uh,
4: that time yeah and i told bala about them i said hey bala you know you should check this out you might be interested in it uh because the Flecktones. you know one of the problems uh, that we had with the sound was that we didn't have a drummer doing physical drums and so you didn't feel the drums in the same way you know when drums are coming through monitors it's tricky uh, and we, we, we would talk about that a lot. And so Bela ended up doing in-ears for many years, uh, mostly because of that. Uh, and it was uh, something, you know, I was curious about it. And, and I, I after a while, I just, I didn't like them because it made me feel like a visitor from outer space. It, they were cool, but they cut me off from the feeling of being connected to the audience, made it feel like I was doing a recording session right? I don't know if you're aware of this, but now they have them, and you, you got the mecca
0: of in your monitors right there in Chicago with, with Santucci, at, uh, Santucci, Sensophonics. Yeah. They have them now that actually have microphones in them that will pick up and have that separate volume control for them. So you can pick up the ambience of the room and not feel so studio isolated, you know?
4: I've um, heard about that. Yes.
0: I got it, uh, made, made a big difference for me when I changed to those. Interesting because yeah, I, 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 as a drummer I, I could hear my cymbals better that way because i'm picking them uh, up but but hearing the room breathe and the, the crowd a little bit more and just not feeling so in the cans
4: yeah yeah it, it just uh, made me too self-conscious in a, in a way in a way and or just i just felt removed like a visitor from outer space you know right hello it, Earthlings. <laughs> <laughs> you you
0: brought something up that i ended i actually skipped over it because we were short on time but i want to go back and, and ask it anyway about future man and, and, and the fleck tones and i was going to hmm. ask how much harder is it i'm asking as a drummer to play you kind of touched on it already instead of playing with a traditional drum set to play with something like a drum guitar
4: well it it does definitely have its challenges and uh that's why the uh in-ear monitors actually help because uh especially with the symbols um you know, you turn your head and high frequencies don't travel around corners very well. So depending on where you are in relation to monitor speakers, you're going to hear those symbols really well or you're not going to hear them well enough. And also the the uh, the the variation in dynamics levels are much more extreme. You can play a lot softer and a lot louder. So setting the, the volume uh, in the monitors for, of those drums is also very tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, it was, uh, there were definitely some difficulties involved in that in, in on stage performances. And, uh, you know, when we were recording albums with headphones on, it was much easier, you know, because everything was right there.
0: Anything physical, like, like taking a cue from a drummer or watching him set something up with a fill, a lot of that sometimes is a visual thing by, by seeing the movement of a drummer. And, and now you're not seeing that because the hand is hardly
4: moving. I agree. Yes, it, it was. it's a whole different thing. Um, but when you're playing with Bela, the banjo is like a drummer because mm-hmm. there's all these eighth notes happening a lot of the time. So if you're playing mm-hmm. like in a in a bluegrass band, uh, the banjo player, everybody is part of the drums, you know, mm-hmm. just like in a Latin band, all the percussionists are part of one big drum set. Uh, so in a bluegrass band, you got the snare on uh, the mandolin. And then you have, like, the guitar playing the chords, almost like the wash of the cymbals in a weird way. Um, and the banjo is like a whole drum set. Mm-hmm. Of course, there's a bass player. Um, bass player's kick drum. And, and, and so the uh, the Bayless Time, I mean, banjo players are obsessed with time. And if you watch most of them, they don't move very much. And they don't have many much facial expression because that machine-like time has to be present at all times in their fingers with doing those banjo rolls. Um, and so uh, the, in playing in the flectones, the drums are a composite of, obviously, the bass. Victor had also extremely percussive style a lot of the time. and the, So Victor and, and, and Baylor were like part of, big part of a drum set. And Roy was the other part, you know? So, uh, and he's really a, a kind of a genius and uh, an inventor. And, you know, that was one of the reasons the flectones had so much chemistry is that all four of us uh, were similar in terms of innovative approaches to our instruments, or, or in Roy's case, inventing his instrument. Right. Um, and so we had a, a similar kind of spirit of exploration and discovery and uh, also of composition.
0: I remember seeing it, and now that you've told me when it started, it had to be an early tour, especially with the room you were in here in St. Louis. God, never seen anything like what Roy was playing at that time in a little basement bar called Cicero.
4: Cicero's.
0: Yeah, man, I was at that show.
4: Um, oh, that was those were great times.
0: I had never seen any music. Like, you know, i 1920, 21 at that point. I've never seen any music like that, and I've certainly never seen anybody doing what Roy is doing. No one had done it before, you
4: know? no I, and and he had to explain he had a little rap that went along mm-hmm. uh you know because people thought like where are the drums coming from like is it a sequence are they playing with a click track and i mean no one understood what was going on yeah uh and most people in the audience were mystified after the first tune or two so uh yeah <laughs> ciceros yeah i
0: remember that place Little
4: <laughs> basement place was it yep. was it painted red and black
0: It was like, yes, you're very good with a a low enough ceiling that you could put your drink on the I-beam above your head. (laughs) um, It was a um, good place. Yeah, yeah, it was. I I played there a million times with my original bands. Can't tell you how many bands I saw on their way up in Mm. in that room, you know, back in the early 90s. And and when I was arranging this interview, um, you mentioned to one of my co-producers that you were at the last Grateful Dead show in Chicago. Yep. And you had a story you'd never told, but you would like to share. Am I am I on point with that?
4: Yeah. Well, that was one of those things, man. That's like, I'm trying to remember. Um, don't tell me of like, was it 93? No, what year was it? It was 95. Okay. Yeah. I, my memory is a little hazy on what year so i had been out of the flectones for two years by that point i i quit the flectones the last week of uh 1992 and uh i had been touring with kenny loggins uh and also a a lot of stuff in europe and and all sorts of other stuff uh, and my own bands and but i you know stayed close with ken and Ken said, "Howard, uh, the dead are coming to Soldier's Field. Uh, Soldier Field, rather. Um, uh, would you like to come with me?" I went. Well, sure. And, you know, I'd love to hear. You know, those guys see Jerry again, and uh, blah blah blah. Dennis McNally will be there, whatever. I'm trying to remember all the things. And the oh, um, Rick Danko and Levon Helm were opening, I believe. Yeah. That's Is right. that correct? Yeah, oh, the band. Yeah, it was left whoever was left in the band right, the, at that point. What, was, right. was Garth? I don't think Garth was there though.
0: You know, I don't remember and I didn't go to those shows because they had just played in St. Louis the night before and that's where I live and I stopped. I was on tour and stopped at home and just didn't need to go there not knowing that it would be the last shows. So, I'm yeah. not exactly sure who was there.
4: But I had met uh, I had met uh, Rick Rick before and I you know, I I have a a very great love for the band and a big soft spot in my heart for rick danko may he rest in peace uh and the, some of the tragedy that he went through when his son died um and they looked to all the for the worst for wear i mean yeah. rick, looked, rick looked terrible i mean i think he had been doing whatever he was doing and he didn't sound good his voice sounded shot like i'm oh shit you know you know somebody who i love so much i was disappointed that that he didn't sound better And the dead got out there, and uh, Jerry didn't look very good. And he was playing like through a fog. And he was playing like, he was on the wrong frets some of the time. And I'm like, when he walked on stage, this is why I was married to my first wife at that point. And I turned to my wife, I
1: said, he looks like death. just saw it felt it i said that to her i said i mean there was something profoundly different
4: and i was very upset at the way he sounded and then he started to play himself straight whatever it was and then uh as as they went on the band sounded really
1: good
2: and then they did so many roads and he
1: sounded so beautiful the sing the playing um that finished and then they went into the the light show you know
4: i turned to my wife i said i want to go now because i want to remember that thing that i
1: just heard i said i don't want to
4: hear anything else i said that was his swan song i mean these are things i said okay i said i want to leave and then there was probably other stuff that happened maybe i said hi to him i don't remember we went backstage i mean i sort of remember like having conversations with their roadies about various things but that's not important um i mean everyone was super nice and you know but i that's when i left i said i want to remember
1: this it was like a uh, beautiful raga played yeah it was fantastic and
4: uh you know i i got the news it was mm, a few weeks later, let's see. Um, I yeah, that. well, I guess
0: yeah, August 9th. so one month.
4: Okay, what date was the was the concert? The ninth, so oh, J- July uh, 9th. of July. Okay, and that was their last show. And uh, I called up David because at the time David and I were, you know, were in touch more. Grisman, and uh, he was crying, and I, I consoled him. I tried to console him a little bit, you know, and uh, he told me, you know, that Jerry was trying to kick it by himself and. You shouldn't have done that uh you can't do that by yourself you know
0: oh dear so that's that memory. thank you so much for sharing that and you know what you you i'm glad you did that i'm glad that for you personally that's when you decided hey i need to go because as that show went on it went back that, down that way. <clears throat> and the encore they did that night originally, the first encore was Black Muddy River, another tender, like So Many Roads, a tender yeah. ballad tempo Jerry tune. And it went so not well that Phil called another tune and they played another one after it. Ooh. To end on a better note. So they finished, they played Box of Rain after that, which oh, originally okay. wasn't supposed to be. And they do yeah. one encore. They do one song.
4: Yeah, yeah. And it just
0: wasn't there. And so Phil called another one. so I'm, I'm really happy for you that you did that and, and that fed your soul when you were able to walk with that. And I really thank you for sharing that with us.
4: Yeah, it was a very strong feeling. I, I don't think about it often, so I'm glad that you that you brought it up. And uh, yeah, uh, So that was probably the last time that I was directly in touch. With anyone from the dead uh, that i can recall mm. uh, and ken told me some stuff afterwards too uh, this, uh, about uh some things that might have been going through jerry's mind at the time also and uh and uh you know i'm sure jerry wrestled with i know he wrestled with a lot of things but also of being you know the center of this cult of adoration uh, that that uh he didn't encourage. I mean, it was just, it it just happened, and I'm sure that it freaked him out. That's know. part of it, for sure. And there's,
0: then there's a business side of being the center of this machine that has over 50 people on payroll that are yeah. all, all relying on us to do what we do to keep them in their homes. Yeah. You know, there's, yes. there's a whole lot to it. <laughs> um, before I let you go, I do this with all my guests. A quick lightning round. I'm just going to ask you some quick questions. A couple of them you already answered. Uh, Your first show, you already answered that was 122767. We figured that out. Uh, Studio recordings or live recordings when it comes to The Grateful Dead?
4: Well, I, I, you know, at first I listened to uh, really uh, studio recordings. I mean, but some of them were of live shows. So, uh, I mean, I think that live recordings are. have much more they're they're much better i mean do you do you have a favorite dead album well i'm the the most influential one for me as i told you was live dead live dead that's actually a
0: very common answer amongst my guests live dead was a big one for a lot of people oh yeah here's a question none of my guests like and i ask it anyway and you're really not gonna like it that favorite non-grateful dead album that one desert island album
4: if you're going to get stuck, what are you taking? Besides one of my own, um, putum uh, uh, Um, that's a really tough question. I mean, I'd have to say, uh, uh, something that I would constantly learn from it's, it's uh, some John Coltrane album. Uh, I mean, "A love Supreme is the easiest thing to say, but it's probably not that one. I, I don't know. You're not the first person to
0: say Coltrane, though, either. That's which yeah. is you know, tells you again the power of John. Um, first
4: job. First first job. A musical job? No, just your first job. My first job was working in my dad's factory when I was, uh, oh, I don't remember, 14 or 15 years old. My dad had a, um, he made uh, wrap toothpicks and paper bags and wash and dry pouches, and I was the shipping clerk. I drove a forklift truck and loaded and unloaded and unloaded trucks
0: that's awesome i love it (laughs) that's that 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 was what i was looking for when i said first job uh favorite color blue
4: favorite venue to play Mm. wow that's a that's a tough question i've played thousands of them i know so uh wow it's really weird but this one venue is coming to my mind and i don't well i love the boulder theater in boulder colorado mm. um <sighs> i uh cicero's basement bar uh, uh. <laughs> um some important things that have happened to me uh spiritually in 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 places i mean boy oh boy that's a tough one at, i really liked playing at the capitol theater in Porchester, new york gonna be there in may which one of my favorites Ah, uh, that is a very special
0: place incredibly special you know and especially along those grateful dead con kind of, um yeah. reasons you know what i mean that's that was their home on the east coast for a long
4: time you know i i know that's that's why i said that to you but i i had a very uh, special feeling playing there of like this great rapport with the audience that um, it was just a mysterious thing I can't describe. And it was just this outpouring of warmth and love that I felt from the audience in that room.
0: Uh, where am my favorite venue to play? Best city
2: for a day off. Hmm. Wow. Uh, that's very funny you mentioned that because I, I at one point I was thinking of
4: writing a book called "Musicians' Twenty Minute Tour Guide to the World's Great Cities." You know? uh, <laughs> It'd be a great book. Best city for a day off? Uh, someplace in Europe? I mean, I don't know Rome, Paris. Yeah, uh, you know, I love wandering around European cities. Yeah. Uh your your first car? Oh boy. A uh, Volkswagen, uh, nineteen sixty nine Volkswagen Squareback. <laughs> right. <All> right. <laughs> your your current car. Uh, well, I have a you know a Mazda uh, CX five. Yeah. And the book you are reading right now. Well, actually, a book I'm writing right now. Uh, there you go. About, Even better. Let's 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 talk uh, about the book you're writing right now. It's about rhythmic breathing rudiments, where I have uh, applied drum rudiments to harmonica playing. Seriously? Yeah. And it's going to be ready by this summer uh, for this big harmonica convention I'm playing in Tulsa. I can't wait to see that. Yeah, I've re-entered, well, I started thinking about this because my son was a drummer, uh, and I was going to his drum lessons and started realizing that um, you could translate uh, right and left hand sticking patterns to uh, blow and draw breathing patterns on the harmonica. So you took the rudiments did you take
0: what the essential 13 or the essential 26 and work
4: with well, those? Well I'm tr- and- I'm trying to maybe uh you know like double stroke triple stroke rolls paradiddles and flam paradiddles and uh you know all the 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 important ones double paradiddles and uh ruffs and uh drag rudiments and stuff and apply them to uh breathing patterns on the harmonica
0: can you apply and this is we're getting geeky folks but can you apply a flam to a breathing pattern since it's two different things happening at once
4: well not quite at once so it's it's like a quick in breath a quick in breath and an out breath you know um i'm trying not to play harmonica where you
1: know you
4: know it's a flam. but up yeah yeah this is gonna be really cool i can't wait to see that yeah because uh, at a certain point I realized that underlying everything uh, that harmonica players do, there's a rhythm of the breath patterns so you could play eight notes but those eight notes might be there might be three blows in a row and then two draws and uh, and a bunch of alternating ones so it might the rhythm rhythm of your breath could be you know something like that instead of da you know this, this is gonna to do the do same so as cool. drum strokes do, 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 da, do, do, da, do, yeah. you know the, the bounce of the stick is a slide from one hole to the other with the same breath direction and
0: this will be out for this when is this festival the end of this summer or uh, next year
4: it's um it's going to be uh second week of august and, and then- uh, i'm trying to get it all organized and and uh write it down and then of course uh have all the musical examples in finale and uh okay. With harmonica sure. tablature, which I hate using usually, but in this case, it's like the, the blow and draw patterns and the rhythms that are generated by them are the most important thing.
0: So cool, um, man. Good luck with that. And please let me know you. when it's done because I can't wait to see it. And thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day and talking with me. And I know my fans are going to really, really enjoy this. I know I have. I've learned a lot. And it's been a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. Likewise, man. Hopefully next time we
4: come to Chicago, maybe maybe you'll be in town. Come in and play a little pig pen with us. Uh, I I would love to, really. Uh, And it's been been a total pleasure, man. And so uh, just be safe out there on the road and stay healthy and, and keep the faith. Right on. Thank you very
0: much. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Howard Levy. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode, and I'd like to thank Howard Levy and Patrick Higgins one more time. I'd also like to thank my sponsors, Grateful Sweats, The Clean Store, and Beth Koritz at yourclarity.coach, and of course, the Pantheon Podcast Network for bringing me into their family. You can check out their 70-plus music-related podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show and would like to support the cause, please consider a monthly Patreon subscription That offers some great bonus content every week, or you can show your love with a one-time contribution. And please remember that a portion of your contribution will go to the Rex Foundation. Get info about this and everything else related to the podcast at our website, www.themusicplaystheband.net. Any love is much appreciated as we try and keep the show rolling along. The Music Plays the Band is produced by myself and the production and songwriting team Brothers Lazaroff here in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find out more about them at www.brotherslazaroff.com. The opening and segue music you are hearing are remixes of portions of DSO drum segments that are produced by my drumming partner, Dino English. I'll be back in two weeks with episode 33. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please stay vigilant. We're on the good side of things, and we want to stay there, so let's uh, all do everything we need to to make that happen. Thanks for being here.
1: What? Wow.
2: Some folks don't stop till they find the truth. June's Journey is a Roaring Twenties murder mystery hidden object
0: game. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android or iOS devices and on PC through Facebook games.
3: It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football